Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Flooding is a recurring problem across Appalachia. So this week, we're taking stock and looking back at the 2016 floods that devastated West Virginia. And we talked to a guy up there and he said, I'm not going to tell you all what to do, but if it was me, I'd get out. So when we tried to get out, we um, White Software was closed because the bridge there had flooded. In 2022 summer floods that irreparably damaged some of the Appalachian archives at the Heinemann Settlement School in Eastern Kentucky. I just wanted to cry, honestly, when I came in here. It was just such a disaster. But even in our hardest moments, there's always hope. I'm not down and out no more. When I'm feeling down, I can go get my guitar. And it just makes me feel better when I can play my guitar. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This summer, we're seeing a lot of signs of climate change. More wildfires, heat waves, and severe storms. And that's pushing climate migration to the mountains. People often cite our four-season weather as reason for moving here. But Appalachia's got its own climate-related issues, like flooding. That's partly due to its topography. Creeks and rivers have carved steep hollers. Then strip mining and steep mountainside development have exacerbated the problem. Today we're looking at the issue of flooding throughout the region. We start with the story from 2016 when West Virginia saw 10 inches of rain in 12 hours. That caused flooding that resulted in 23 deaths and led the governor to mobilize hundreds of members of the West Virginia National Guard. But as Jessica Lilly reported from the town of Richwood, this history goes back a lot farther. Just outside of City Hall, things were calm but busy. That's where I met up with Richwood native Alan Rose. So where are we standing and what are we looking at? Okay, right now we're standing in the City Hall parking lot. Uh, right now we're looking over at the uh, Cherry River Plaza. And that's, uh, it's got our Dollar General. It once had our food land, um, our Rite Aid pharmacy. And it, it was pretty swamped. The water was supposed to be really deep in there. Uh, they're saying it's going to be a little while until they're able to open again. And that, that's pretty much our, our main source of groceries and food for the area. Otherwise, we have to go all the way to Walmart that's 24-mile drive one way. So you can imagine that'll be pretty rough. So you said that's a, a, a Rite Aid and a Dollar General, which is your main food source, and, and the water came in from that side? Uh, yes, the river is just on the other side of that, past the high school. I can show you that later. Uh, and it, it, it just cascaded through the parking lot. Um, you can see the water line here under the Foodland sign. It looks to be at least three feet high from here. Emergency officials were setting up floodlights to prepare for the evening. Like so many places across the state, the town of Richwood was left without water, electricity, and even phone lines. Residents say water came gushing into the valley from the mountains on Thursday, turning over fences and leaving a thick layer of mud on everything, even the high school football field. That's where I found 14-year-old Hannah Addington. I live in Nettie, which is right beside Richwood, and I've went to Richwood since sixth grade and it's really devastating. Hannah is a cheerleader and plans to cheer for the Lumberjacks in her first year of high school this fall. While standing in front of a broken gate to the Richwood High School athletic field, Hannah explains that she was in Greenbrier County when the floods hit. And we talked to a guy up there and he said, I'm not gonna tell you all what to do, but if it was me, I'd get out. And so when we tried to get out, we, um, White Software was closed because the bridge there had flooded, so there was no possible way to get out. And then when we tried to get back to our camp, um, the road back to our camp was flooded. So we were stuck in a two-mile stretch to drive back and forth for a long time. Richwooders, as they call themselves, are no stranger to flooding. According to a website called richwooders.com, in 1954, a flood washed away cars, damaged homes, and businesses. They called it the super flood. Let's listen to a recording of Gene Ward taken right after the flood. It's a little hard to hear since it was recorded back in 54, but we wanted to share because the woman explains that it was difficult to be heard from Richwood as she called for help. 
I contacted Washington and I contacted Charleston and our wives kept breaking up so badly that I didn't know whether they were going to be able to help us or not, but they assured me that they would do what they can and then our wire went off and from then on it was just up to them. Being able to communicate is something that many of us take for granted, but even today it is kind of hard to be heard from Richwood since cell service is kind of spotty. Still, the images from 1954 are similar to the flood this year. But word did spread much faster in 2016 thanks to the Internet and social media. Former Councilman Jeremy Rose was quick to take a few pictures and post to his Facebook page. The images showed floodwaters blanketing the town of Richwood. And in town, the water carried debris through alleys and even gushed into the Nicholas County Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Alan Rose showed us around the outside of the building where sandbags, abandoned wheelchairs, and thick mud rippled in the parking lot. Alan volunteered to help with the evacuation of the almost 100 residents. We had the buses coming in, filling them up, and it got to the point where there was no room on the buses, so we had to pull people out uh, onto the, the grassy bank just above that wall there, um, probably good 15 or 20 people uh, we had to pull up and, and over over that hillside lifting wheelchairs above our heads uh, w- with water up to our, ra- our waist, debris like you see here, uh, just flowing, flowing down the alleyway. Now we're talking about people who are strapped to wheelchairs, elderly, many of them immobile. What kind of things were they saying to you as you were helping them? Oh, many people were panicked about uh, water, Um, Some people spoke about childhood memories of floods of the past. Um, Many people, the the biggest complaint was, I can't swim. (laughs) Yeah. And And what would you say to them? They'd say, I can't swim, I can't swim. And you'd say, what would you say? Oh, I would tell them, we're we're not swimming. I'm big enough to float for both of us, you know. Um, No, we're we're just waiting. It's a a free free swim for Richwood, you know. And most of the, the, the jokes and everything that all the volunteers were using helped calm people down more than denial of the situation. You get them smiling and everything, and and that really calms people down. The nursing home evacuation happened on Thursday, before the National Guard arrived. My colleagues and I drove through other parts of Richwood and found the park and Little League field still soaked and holding water. In town, a thick layer of mud squished around my rain boots as I turned to take a picture. And as a car rolled past me, I recognized the man driving. He smiled on the double take when he realized it's me. A familiar face. It was J.D. Estep, a former classmate at school. He whipped his car around and pulled in beside me to give me a hug. He was one of the workers who helped with the evacuation. He explained that he was proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with his neighbors to help his residents. I have never been more proud to be a mountaineer or a citizen of West Virginia than I was in the middle of that disaster. People opened their yards, their homes, wherever we could put residents. That's where they put them. They were out there helping us, getting them across the road, doing whatever we could do to get them out of that water. It was horrifying and incredible. We keep hearing that story. It's kind of what us mountaineers is what we do. Absolutely. It's, I can't, for the last two days, I just keep hearing John F. Kennedy over and over in my head. The sun might not always shine on West Virginia, but its people always do. And... Unfortunately, it takes a disaster to remind us of that, but that spirit never goes away. And as soon as someone you know is in need, everybody is there. And you can't put a price on that. It's invaluable. So I take it that's what you like most about living here, the people. You can't buy that. You, you can have all the money in the world, and, and if your neighbors aren't going to help you, then you're up, literally up a creek, you know? And at the same time, you know, we were talking before about the revitalization efforts here in Richwood. Um, you know, there's a question of whether or not Richwood will be able to rebuild if there's going to be an energy to rebuild, but, you know, some of that was already in motion. What do you think? Do you think Richwood can rebuild? I think that the citizens of Richwood want more than anything to see this community back to what it used to be. At one time, this was one of the biggest places in this whole state you could come to. There were shops here, but that was when mining was big. For the last 
20 years, there's been a conversation about revitalizing this community, and steps have been taken. We've got some of the most beautiful murals you've ever seen painted on old buildings that have been gone into disuse. There are sculpture gardens. There are little planters everywhere. Like, the people have tried. The problem is you have a generational divide. You have people in my demographic and younger, 35 and below, who are full of energy and full of ideas and ready and willing and wanting to do something. But then you have the older generation who has money, who has power. They're happy with the way things are, and they're not in a hurry to change them because they're okay. And that is the reality of Richwood. We would love to see all of this cleaned up and revitalized and brought back to life, but we don't have that control. Citizens of Richwood don't control this economy. Jessica Lilly reported that story in 2016. The process of rebuilding Richwood has been slow, but the town's been actively developing outdoor recreation-based tourism. Meanwhile, residents are still carrying on community traditions. The town maintains its claim as the ramp capital of the world and hosts the Feast of the Ransom every April. Appalachia's seen major flooding events like the one that affected Richwood. But flooding happens in Appalachian communities all the time. Sometimes because of where they're located, and sometimes because they don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. Rand, West Virginia is located just outside Charleston. About 900 people live in Rand, and 40% are black, according to the U.S. Census. And flooding is a regular problem there, partly because of its long-standing issues with faulty storm sewers. Tiara Brown reported this story and ran for a recent episode of WMMT's Mountain Talk. Since the 1970s, nearly every time it rains, the town of Rand, West Virginia, gets flooded. It's a common occurrence in many places across central Appalachia. Rand sits on the north bank of the Canal River, just upstream of Charleston, in an area that's known as Chemical Valley. Mac Reed is a resident of Rand who surveys local flooding after every rain, documenting sitting water and damaged property. In August of 2022, he showed me a drain on Elaine Drive that had collapsed and filled with debris. He told me he was upset that the State Division of Highway hadn't fixed the issue. What we're looking at right now is a drain. And DOH said they're going to come here until the problem start getting solved. And they would clean the drains out. And DOH came one time, and I haven't seen them again. And that one time probably was a year and a half. As you see the drain right now, how can water go through that drain? And the only thing we're asking for right now, until this project is fixed, to start cleaning these drains out for us. It will help a whole lot. And um, so when it rains, we just see a high rise because of the clogged drains, correct? I mean, I, what is not only clogged drains, and they already they came down and said the, uh, the lines, the culverts is crushed. So the water had nowhere to run. So my thing is, they know the problem. And a lot of these flooding we had last week, week before, that's Mother Nature. And I, my, heart go up, my heart go out for those guys, right? But this is a problem that can be fixed. You can fix this problem because you already know the problem. So what's going on here? Someone else who would like to see progress is longtime community activist John Smith. How long have you lived here in Rain, West Virginia? Well, I, I was born in West Virginia, so I've been here forever. Moved here in October of 1960. And when so. you moved to this area, you started uh, experiencing the flooding um, instantly, or did it, did it progressively become a problem? The, the first five we were here, we didn't have much trouble with it. But in 1975, they had already started working on a new sewer system here. And it uh, seemed like everything just fell apart at that point. 
we come to find out later on that what they did in order to force you on the new suicide, they disconnected everything from here to the river. And they never hooked it back up, so that just left us in the mess that we're in now. In addition to that, when they built this sewer system, these pump stations, they weren't adequate from the beginning. They were obsolete from the beginning. The West Virginia Division of Highways started to address the draining issues in Rand in 2020. But for a couple of years, community members didn't see much progress, and they had little sense of the project's timeline. In late April 2023, I sat down with DOH representatives to try to get an update for their community. I spoke with Chief Engineer of Development Jason Foster and Chief Engineer of Environmental Compliance Douglas Kirk. So I guess we can just start um, by looking at where we're at right now. Um, currently, we're in the design phase and environmental clearance phase. This summer, we're doing endangered muscle surveys to verify whether they are or are not within the project limits. We have just completed core boring activities, which was to verify soil conditions for the deeper type work. And currently, the consultant is evaluating the results of those core borings so they can lay out proper slopes and depths. And with some of those clearings, I know that um, there was talk of right-of-ways acquisition Mm -hmm. needed. Um, Can you touch on that a little bit? Sure. Um, There are several strip takes, is what we would call them, where we're needing temporary construction easements. And this is a result of the public sanitary sewer system has so many conflicts with our drainage network that we're going to have to relocate portions of that system and we will need to tie back in the public to that system. So we're taking easements to make all those tie-ins. It's physical, like the lines are hitting each other conflict. But in terms of funding, can we kind of touch on, you know, how that money funneled in and how it's being distributed throughout the phases? There is um, not special money coming for this project. This right. is a, a Division of Highways funded project. Uh, We investigated uh, pursuing certain grants, but we found that the administrative challenge of administering those grants was going to exceed the value of having the the money. So we're planning to fund it ourselves through DOH funding. I guess talk to me a little bit about your transition from the beginning to where you're at right now with this project. Sounds like you've been with it for a while. So in the design study of this, we uh, looked at some old records you know, before the area was developed, and we found that uh, that there was what we would call a slough, kind of an overflow channel through a portion of the community of Rand. And that low area was developed later. Houses were built later there. So basically people built on the high ground, but eventually they filled in the area where the slough had been. And uh, even though there were storm drains built across it, to drain all that area to the river, they fell in disrepair. And so that slough area no longer drained properly. And that seems to be the most uh, challenging area, the area of greatest impact. If you've seen the pictures of, you know, standing water in people's yards for days, that's, that's through that area. And so we decided to phase the project to address those most egregious problem areas first. And so that's how the project is going to roll out. I know that you said um, you saw some some documentation about the pipes, the drains in, from the 1970s. Was that um, state docks or was that who owned the drains before? I know that's a big mystique for the people there. Right. So that was a concern is who who installed the drainage system. And we did at first we thought that None of it had been installed by the highway department. A lot of these roads were built by private funds. In fact, the residents funded a lot of the paving out of their own money back when it was originally done. Um, Malden came in with the, with the sanitary sewer system at some point. But those major storm drain systems that cut across were built by the highway department. And so those docks were state documents that you were able to find yes, to backtrack? They were, yes, they were Division of Highways documents. One thing I want to clarify is this, the systems 
that we found that were installed by the DOH were to actually convey water from the new US 60 to the river. So it, the internal drains in Rand were not installed by the DOH. It, it was conveyance through the community. So we had taken right away through some areas and we're partly using that as justification to start working within the community of Rand is that we own some of the rights of way that would need to be used to convey the water within Rand out of the town. But there's very little information on, on the actual systems within Rand. We've adopted the position in Rand that there's a series of unfortunate events that have left the community unable to remove water from the community. So we're taking it on as an identified problem and not trying to get back to the source of the problem. We're just saying we're going to try to address it moving forward. Because um, quite frankly, I think it's immaterial at this point of how we got here. It's we've agreed to take it on and try to resolve it. That story is part of a documentary by WMMT on flooding in the region. You can find the full episode linked on our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up. Well, the rain was steady falling through the early morning dawn. And we wondered if it was ever gone again. We talk with songwriter Alan Cathead Johnston, who witnessed disastrous flooding and responded with words and music. Just seeing the way it did uh, all my friends, you know, like seeing all of that destruction and everything, it just had a big effect on me. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. Alan Cathead Johnston wrote this song about two horrific back-to-back unannounced 100-year floods that tore through McDowell County in the space of 10 months' time. It's been a couple of decades, but Folkways reporter Connie Kitts found that people are still drawing strength and comfort from this ballad. On the banks of the Elkhorn Creek in the little town of Kimball, Flood survivor Markella Giannato is making french fries at her little Greek-American restaurant called the Yasu. 21 years ago, not far from here, Markella saw buildings and debris and a mother and child being washed away. The ballad, Muddy Water, is still part of her healing from those events. Every phrase of that song is so real. And everything that he has said, I lived. You know what I'm saying? But the truthfulness in the ballad lyrics cut both ways for Markella. At first, it was very hard for me to hear it. I could not talk about it at first. I have had to have treatment for PTSD and so forth. Now it seems like it's just part of my heart. Markella uses the ballad story to tell her story when she talks to volunteer mission groups who come to the county to do repair work in the summers. The song plays alongside photos that Markella narrates. She opens the PowerPoint presentation on her laptop. Um, that's Richard Jones. That's the guy that rescued my dad. That part touches me, I think, the part of we wondered if it was ever going to end. Markella and her family were trapped for hours before rescuers reached them. And I call the presentation Forever Changed because it changed our town, but mostly it changed me. Even the line about hopes and dreams being washed away changed the way she looks at things. Well, it washes your hopes and dreams away, but they come back to you sometimes. Maybe different. And that different for her is this restaurant, not her father's original grocery store and not the sandwich shop she'd planned. But in the end, the Yasu restaurant is better. She's honoring the spot where her immigrant father started his dream, and the people of Kimball have a place to gather and hear live music on the weekends. In fact, the first time I heard the ballad Muddy Water performed was when Alan Johnston sang it here before the COVID shutdowns. Hey, Markel. 
Alan drops into Markella's restaurant sometimes for a burger. He's known her since high school. He's a bear of a guy with a long flowing beard and wavy hair down past his shoulders. He's dressed in blue jean overalls with a camo t-shirt. He grew up on Premier Mountain and he's been writing songs and singing his whole life. When he was about five years old, he sang the coal mining ballad 16 Tons in the grocery store. So they put me up on the meat case there and I'd sing it. You know, 16 tons, that must have been a sight. In fact, it was the grocery store boss who years later gave him the nickname Cathead when he found out Alan loved to eat those big Cathead biscuits. Music is in his genes. His grandmother played the claw hammer banjo and passed that down to Alan's father, a coal miner. Daddy, he was awesome. He was awesome on the claw hammer banjo and the fiddle. And he played the guitar very well. And uh, so every night when I came home from school, after I got my homework done and everything, it would just play music. Every night, every night, play, play music. And, uh, and then he would give me a pointer or two, you know. He'd say, do that like this, you know, do that like this. Alan's main instruments are guitar and acoustic bass, but he also plays mandolin, banjo, fiddle, and keyboards. So when you hear those instruments in muddy water, well, that's Alan playing each one, and he sang. I'm not much of a singer. I got come up short on that end, but my daughters can really flat out what I call them, you know, are fantastic singers. The voices of both Jesse and Stacy are familiar to many in McDowell County, and Alan recorded a version of Muddy Water with each daughter. When it played on the radio shortly after the floods, it became the most requested song at WELC. Alan says he had to write Muddy Water. Just seeing the way it did uh, all my friends, you know, like seeing all of that destruction and everything, it just had a big effect on me. I heard Hank Williams Jr. say one time, um, you know, it's, it's in him and it's got to come out. I believe if it's in you, it's got to come out. Um, even if it's a splinter. People wanted CDs of the song. Alan thought about the old 45 RPM record singles. And there was two songs on it, front and the back, you know, A side, B side. And I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'll kind of mimic that in a way. So he put two songs on a CD disc and made 50 copies using his own home studio equipment and supplies. And uh, before I could clock in, the 50 were gone. He said he had to charge something for them, so he sold them for $3 a piece. I ended up selling over 5000 You might call it Alan's version of the old-time ballad broadsides. It's the recording that circulated on the Internet, though, that Cynthia Cox remembers hearing. Cynthia grew up in North Fork Collar, about 10 miles east of Kimball. Her home was severely damaged in the floods, and they made the hard decision of moving to Bluewell, where we met up. Logging rigs and 20-ton coal trucks are coming out of McDowell County and break at the traffic light on Route 52, where Cynthia is on her way to a house cleaning job. She's dressed in leggings, sneakers, and a light jacket. She's still deeply moved when she listens to muddy water. Um, even driving in the county now, uh, I still think at times like that happened yesterday, and the people stay with you. The song stays with you. Um, just hearing the rift of the music in itself draws you in. And then when you listen to the lyrics and you survive the muddy waters yourself, then yes, it, it offered comfort that we couldn't speak. And, and I still, I still tear up over that song. The anger toward the timber and coal mining was real, and he spoke it when he sang it. He could say what we couldn't say. It leads her to talk about the economic and political struggles that still go on. It's not ended yet. Uh, you know, the news articles tried to capture it. The photographs back then tried to capture it. But you don't really hear it and feel the story till you hear him sing Muddy Water.
how can it happen again, you know? So when you go on faith, like, okay, yes, I realize we're, we're not invincible from flooding. We're not invincible from um, any kind of natural disaster. You know, you don't think I might face a train derailment of toxic chemicals, like the East Palestine train derailment, until the things happen and it gives you insight to, yeah, we're not exempt from nothing, really. Well, we worked so hard to put back what you took away before, just to have you come and take it all again. Ten thousand people cried, seven people died. And I could hear the devil laughing in the wind. So you need music. You need healthy outlets. You need a sense of community. Even when devastation, natural disasters destroy it, you still need community. The therapy that came from his music helped us to grieve, which gave us strength so we could rebuild and regather to like, okay, we're either going to stay down here or we're going to have to move. When you're on the other side of it, you're like, we all survived. I commend those who were able to stay, and at times I envy that. When once you're county, that's always home. It doesn't leave you. The people don't leave you. Sorry. But that's the community. Cynthia's love for her community and the power of this ballad reminded me of something Alan had told me. I had somebody tell me one time that uh, that must be a cool place to live because everybody writes songs about where you uh, live, you know, in Appalachia. He said, nobody's ever written a song about where I live. <laughs> I thought about that a while and I thought it is a cool place to live. I wouldn't live anywhere else. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Kitts in Kimball, West Virginia. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear it again, or to listen to any of our other Folkway stories, visit our website at wvpublic.org. It's impossible to talk about flooding without acknowledging 2022's historic floods in eastern Kentucky. The floods killed at least 38 people and damaged some of the region's cultural centers, including Apple Shop in Whitesburg and the Heinemann Settlement School. WFPL's Stephanie Wolf visited Hyman just after the floods to take stock of what was lost. The floodwaters were swift and merciless. At the Hyman Settlement School, they burst doors off the hinges and submerged historical records dating back to the 1800s in several feet of water. Careful, it's getting a little bit slippery. Executive Director Will Anderson shows what remains of the archive rooms. Initially, there was probably three, maybe four inches of mud in this hallway. Mud flecks empty drawers that stand against the wall. They used to hold journals, letters, photographs, documentation of Appalachian life. Anderson says they had protected the collection from the threat of fire. They weren't prepared for flooding like this. I just wanted to cry, honestly, when I came in here. It was just such a disaster. The Heinemann Settlement School recently marked 120 years. Two women founded it to educate the children of coal miners. Over time, it's adjusted its programs to address the community's needs, like food insecurity or supporting kids with dyslexia. The schools also celebrate it for preserving local arts and culture through its writing residencies, music education, and archives. Now staff and volunteers are at work to save what they can. If we want to pull out that box, Anderson says some of the artifacts need expert inspection. So they had to find a way to stop further damage. You know, we just ran up to Lowe's and we bought five big chest freezers, you know, 18 cubic chest freezers, and we put what we could inside of those chest freezers, and it kind of suspends them in time. Some records had been digitized, but it remains unclear how much will be lost. One of the most valuable things about these kinds of archives is that often they negate the stereotypes that have been perpetuated. That's novelist Silas House, who grew up in eastern Kentucky. He says TV, film, and other media rarely show Appalachians in a nuanced way. And so to have this accurate historic record of us be so threatened is really devastating. House drove to Hyman to help with flood cleanup. He has his own history at the settlement school. He's attended and taught at the annual Appalachian Writers Workshop, which helps local writers take ownership of their own stories. Programs like that, says House, 
make the school a major contributor to the literary arts across the country. And just about anybody in the writing world would tell you that. I mean, I just can't imagine if they hadn't offered that program, and I just don't think I would have ever figured out how to become a writer in the way that I did. Director of Traditional Arts Education Sarah Kate Morgan typically spends her day teaching kids about Appalachian music and dancing. My role at the settlement kind of shifted into housing people here on campus and like making sure they had transportation so they could go apply for FEMA. And so I've been preoccupied with the humanitarian need here. Morgan hasn't yet been able to think about the potential cultural losses. Josh Mullins, who works at the school, thinks art has a role in the recovery. He's reaching out to this year's workshop writers to document their stories. About 75 of them were on campus when the floods hit. They want the community to participate as well. Hopefully as a healing process to express themselves and so also just for the history, you know, we lost more archives, but we're working to rebuild it back. Part of that rebuilding is documenting this chapter in Appalachian history. I'm Stephanie Wolf in Heinemann. Eastern Kentucky's recovery has been slow and riddled with troubles. Many families had trouble getting money to cover their losses. Whether from insurance companies or from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. As Katie Myers reported for the Ohio Valley Resource in 2022, some of them were still in limbo when winter arrived. On the outside, it looks like an ordinary shed. Inside, neighbors catch up while they look through piles of toiletries, diapers, and toys. There are some people getting in their homes, and a lot of them need supplies. There's a makeshift office where Donna Rourke works. She lives next door, and she's kept the shed open because the needs keep coming, keep changing, as people rebuild. And every day, people bring stuff in. The people, not the officials, not anybody else. It's just the people. Rourke calls it the people's building. There's federal and state money committed to the region, but it can be confusing and difficult to navigate getting money in hand. Rourke doesn't have a lot of faith in these institutions. What she sees most is regular people stretching their own resources to help out. All the money that was donated and appropriated for the people, they haven't seen it. That's life in eastern Kentucky right now. A limbo, a holding pattern. Even for those who still have their houses, the cold brings urgency. The money they cobbled together can't cover everything. It's being smushed and everybody's like on top of everybody. Rosa Foss came to the People's Building from her temporary state camper on Carfork Lake. She lives there with her husband and two daughters. She needed to stretch her legs a little. Mom, I'll give a no. And she brought her youngest, Molly, with her. It was okay during the summertime because they would get out and ride their bikes and stuff. But now that they're in the house, they're right together. Molly is outgoing and sweet. She runs around the shed, not always staying out of trouble. But when they're alone, Foss says she gets sad. She was telling me this morning she was just wants to go back home. About 25 minutes drive away, Janice niece lives on a steep hill above a gully with a creek running through it. Her dad, brother, and husband are all buried there next to each other, and someday she will be too. After the flood, the hill began to give. She keeps a nervous watch on it through the pouring rain. Once the ground freezes and it thaws back out, it's just going to cause it to sink more. She's not worried about the house falling off the hill. It's the graves. I don't even know if I'm going to have enough money to even fix all this, to be honest. It needs to be fixed, I do know that, because the dead's resting in peace. She finally found contractors after five months, but they can't come quick enough. This whole ordeal's been stressed. Tommy Newhouse lives in Topmost in Knott County. It's one of the hardest hit communities and it's still pretty wrecked. The flood broke the bridge that connects his house to the main road. Dealing with FEMA has been nothing but stress. Newhouse is on disability. Outside of his family home, he doesn't have a lot of money or assets. He felt powerless this fall, spending hours on hold with every authority he could think of. They didn't care you was in a disaster. They didn't care that your world got turned upside down. It was like, you ain't got the paperwork, who cares? After numerous FEMA appeals, he finally found someone to fix the bridge. It's a slow but significant step forward. You! I said you! 
your love travels. In the Millstone Missionary Baptist Church, the church ladies cooked Christmas dinner. Ham, green beans, enough mashed potatoes to feed a mob. <laughs> Billy June Richardson, the pastor's daughter, came to help. It was the church's first Christmas dinner since before COVID. And they're cooking and we'll have people come in from everywhere with food and it'll, it'll be a nice night. Most days, she drives around Millstone trying to connect people with resources. I get calls. Can you send me an electrician? Can you send me a plumber? Can you send me some help? So The holiday season wasn't all cheer. Further extreme weather came in the form of a severe Christmas weekend cold snap, which froze water lines and burst pipes all over eastern Kentucky. Richardson fielded calls for help from flood survivors. Pipes burst in trailers and people were cold. She says folks are tired of being resilient. And it's feeling like, as usual, it's the neighbors who are going to come through in the end. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers. When you spend time in Appalachia and live through a few floods, you tend to notice a recurring theme. Neighbors helping neighbors. In Millstone, Kentucky, gospel musicians were cut off from participating in part of their culture after they lost their instruments. Many found help reconnecting with their music. This story is from Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave. I'm in Letcher County, Kentucky, in an old coal camp called Millstone. It sits along the North Fork of the Kentucky River, and it was one of the communities hit hard by the July 28th flood. I'm here with Dean Mackby. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's counting up all the homes in this community that were lost. 10, 11, 12, 13. In, in Millstone? In Millstone. In a community of less than 100, 13 is a staggering number. Dino, that's what everyone calls him, grew up in Millstone. He moved back here from South Carolina 25 years ago to be closer to his aging parents. And he bought the house right next to theirs. After his parents passed, Dino's sister moved into the family home. Her house was one of the ones lost to the flood. So it's just an empty lot now? Just an empty lot, yeah. This is where we grew up, right here. The flood filled Dino's house with about six feet of water, but he and his wife planned to rebuild. Dino's done a lot of work gutting the first floor and treating for mold. Just be careful on these steps that they're just leaning here. We walk up the wobbly stairs into the house. Tore it all out, and I'll put all the joists back, put the plywood on it, sheetrock and insulation. So, yeah, just to describe it, we're down to the studs in here. Down to to the floor. Down to the floor, yeah. I mean, dirt dirt floor. floor. Dirt floor. While Dino's made some progress on his house, he hasn't been able to give much time to the wooden shed out back. That was his music room. The outside of the shed is decorated with cast iron skillets, old license plates, and carved wooden animals. See my art stuff? That's my my dad's brother carved the bar. Then my dad did the fishing and the birds. Dino shows me the inside. But this is my music stuff right here. Wow. Mix the boards, my mic, my studio microphone. I don't know where it's at in here. I'm not. I'm slowly getting stuff out of it here. Yeah, you can see the rust on the microphones yes, and all that flood yes. mud dried. Amplifiers and speakers are tossed around on their sides. Dried mud is caked over everything, and black mold has started growing on the walls. The license plates hanging above the door show how high the water rose. It got, it got up to the license place, the water it is. Gosh, that's what, like 10 feet? Yes. Wow. So that's almost to the ceiling. Well, it is yeah, to the ceiling, it, past it the ceiling. Yeah, it was to the ceiling because, it's, see here, the, the light, the, it's got, it had water in the ceiling. Oh, yeah, the ceiling fan yeah. is all warped and yes. drooping. Wow. <laughs> we head over to the small camper that Dino and his wife are living in now. And he tells me how he got into playing guitar. My dad played played music, and um, and I started when I was an early age. He started me out. I started when I was probably about eight years old, teaching me the basics of, of a flat top. Then when I was probably about 12, he brought a bass guitar home and, and introduced me to a bass guitar. And I really liked it, and that's what I stuck with. Dino's dad was a well-known flat top player in the community. He played country music in the bars and nightclubs around town. But then he got saved, trading in late nights at the bar for early mornings at church. 
After that, he made one request to Dino. He asked asked me one thing. He said, son, promise me that you will not take your talent into the bars, into the nightclubs. And I promised him that. And I've been playing, I play gospel, strictly gospel while I play. As a young boy, Dino traveled with his dad to different churches to play. Evangelists would come in. And they would say, well, come and help us with the music. And we would go, for that week, we'd, we'd be in revival with them, and we'd help them with the music. And that's what we did. We just went to different churches and just have a good time with the Lord. As an adult, Dino continued to perform gospel music with his dad. For 20 years, they were part of a group that traveled to neighboring counties, with Dino on bass and his dad on flat-top guitar. When Dino's dad passed away several years ago, his guitars and amplifiers went to Dino. Dino had been keeping them in the music shed. It's filled with his family's history of making music. The day of the flood, everything floated in the water for about 13 hours. Dino says it's painful to see his dad's guitars and amplifiers in such rough shape. I packed them guitars and amplifiers for him when I started about 11 or 12 years old. And... There are other guitars out there like them, but it's not that guitar. Money could not buy them back. All of Dino's guitars, including his dad's, have been drying out at his other sister's house. He has hoped that some of them can be saved. Dino says his dad's amplifiers are too far gone to fix, but he plans to keep them anyway. And people say, what are you going to do with them? I said, they'll sit right there. I will look at them every day. Because as long as I got them, I got my dad. There have been some bright spots for Dino since the flood. A friend bought him a new bass and amplifier to replace ones he lost. Now, he's able to play every Sunday at church again. And Dino's sister cleaned up his flat-top guitar. He just got it back from her a few days ago, and already he feels relief being able to play again. I'm not down and out no more. While I'm feeling down, I can go get my guitar. And it just makes me feel better when I can play my guitar. He called my name And I heard his voice He called my name And I made my choice For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Millstone, Kentucky. Nicole lives on the border of eastern Kentucky, near a town that saw heavy flooding damage. She's reported multiple stories about recovery efforts there. You can find them on our website at wvpublic.org. We talked earlier about flooding at the Heinemann Settlement School in Kentucky last summer. West Virginia poet Doug Van Gundy was there at the school for the Appalachian Writers' Workshop the night Troublesome Creek flooded. He shared this poem with us, which was partly inspired by what he saw. This is called The Flooded Town. Forget for a moment what's to come. Reek of diesel, swollen drywall crumbling to dust, liberated spores of mold in full black bloom, and notice this, an empty town at the exact moment the water's crest, nearly silent and everything still. Places that were backyards and ravines and parking lots and will be again are, for the moment, backwaters where ducks and wading birds survey their temporary territory. A green heron perches on a state road sign. A pair of mallards paddle past the drowned steps of the Baptist church. In the stillness, clouds are breaking up and sunlight is spilling through. This is not the optimistic ending, the silver sentimental lining. No one will be spared their share of sorrow their little ladleful of loss. Misery has a long reach. But for now, one might be forgiven for seeing them as beautiful, these sunken, unpeopled streets. Van Gundy returned to the Heinemann Settlement School for this summer's Appalachian Writers' Workshop, where he taught poetry. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Yes.
theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jackson Brown, the Dirty River Boys, Alan Cathead Johnson, Dino McBee, and Yonder Mountain String Band. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. Oh!